vulnerability, if you are a vulnerable leader, you are simply willing to acknowledge reality, right? You're mm. willing to be honest about what is so. And that's because your job is to help others respond productively, you know, to cope and to remain strong in the face of these challenges. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 87 of the Love in Action podcast, where we help make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. And here, we believe that can only happen through practical love, demonstrated in acts of care, connection, safety, and belonging, the way all of us, human beings, were designed to experience work. My guest today is back for a second time on the show. Hey, I, I can't get enough of the guy. Tomas Chamorro Premusic rejoins us, and he brought with him another amazing first-time guest. I'll, I'll introduce her in a minute. Tomas is Chief Talent Scientist at Manpower Group and Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University. He is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, and leadership development. Tomas has written 10 books, including his most recent one, which I can positively confirm is one of my all-time favorite books. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I have covered Tomas's book in my writings and thought leadership. In fact, Tomas is probably sick of seeing it by now. That book, which is based on decades of research, is called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And I'm telling you, it's a page turner. So since I interviewed Tomas way back on episode 12, can you believe it? Episode 12, go check that out. I followed his work and writings. So I was on a Harvard Business Review the other day on the website and an article that Tomas co-wrote with Amy Edmondson popped up and it's called, Today's Leaders Need Vulnerability, Not Bravado. Wow. So this article has, as you can imagine, it's gotten a lot of traction. And you've probably read it. If not, I'm going to put the link to it in my show notes. So look for it in the resources section. Naturally, I had to have Tomas come back. Well, guess what? He is back. But he also brought with him the brilliant and wonderful Amy Edmondson, who co-wrote the article. And I could not be more thrilled to have both of them here today. If you're not familiar with Amy Edmondson, where have you been? Okay, I'll cut you some slack, folks. But she is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. Her work on teaming, psychological safety, and leadership has influenced corporate and academic audiences all over the world. Her most recent book is already a classic, which is called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Amy has been recognized by Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011 and was recently honored with the Breakthrough Idea Award in 2019. 
man, what a great tag team we have today. Welcome, gang, to the Love and Action podcast. Thank you for having us. And that looked like, you know, I was zoning out listening to a radio show, but now I have to contribute, which is the hard <laughs> Luckily, we have Amy. That's true. It's a great intro. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, people often accuse me of the radio, vo- the broadcast voice. I don't, it's not something that, it's, you know, I didn't train for. It just, the voice comes out. And by the way, it's this morning, you're the first conversation I'm having today. So I have that kind of that low, kind of groany voice. Well, this will be my first and my last, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so gang, this is being recorded the day after Thanksgiving 2020 on Black Friday. So I always start with a gratitude moment and it's quite fitting that we're doing this the day after in such a tumultuous year. So what are you guys grateful for? I'll start with you, Amy. Well, I'm grateful for my family. I'm particularly grateful for my husband who made something like 10 dishes yesterday. I didn't do a thing. Every single one of them uh, was, was a winner. And of course, I'm grateful for my health and great colleagues. How about you, Tomas? Well, you know, I, I, I guess this kind of the spiritual and serious answer is same, you know, healthy and happy family and the fact that we've been able to stay, you know, productive and together. And personally, the silver lining for me has been no trouble in the last eight months. So that has been great. But the real thing I'm grateful for is yesterday I was kind of trying to make a soda stream and a big glass bottle just exploded in front of me like leaving scars in the, in the walls and the ceiling, glass all over it. So it was literally like an explosion, a bomb exploded in my hands and no one was injured. So I take that as like a sign that I'm lucky. Were you one of those kids that played with the chemistry sets and they have things blow up? Yeah, but a long time ago. So this, <laughs> this was a, a, I'm married to a lawyer, so she's already written a letter to uh, the company that produces it. And I think in Black Friday, they won't sell many of these. That's funny. Well, guys, it's so good to have you here. So I want to break down that HBR article you both co-wrote and and also talk about some of the themes of your work and your most recent books. And of course, tie all that in to how best to lead in a world filled with so much uncertainty. So Let's start with the article. But before we dive into that, I'm really curious. I mean, what's the story behind how you two connected to collaborate on this article? I mean, Tomas, was it just you say, hey, Amy, let's write this together? Or is there something more here? Well, it was me because, you know, Amy was and still is one of my academic heroes. Uh So I was the kind of uh, annoying groupie that pursued her. And uh, (laughs) there was like three events in a row back in the day when you would travel and have in-person events where I was either her warm-up act or lost to her in some award, you know, HR kind of category. And so, you know, we, we were hanging out more in person. And then I think it was Amy in the summer when we were in lockdown talking about the events and leadership that we said, you know, what if we came together, uh, joined our two different perspectives and wrote something, I think. Mm. Mm. Amy, is he an annoying groupie to you? I'm just curious. Yeah, annoying. Annoying as can be. Yeah. If I if I had more annoying groupies like that, I would be a very lucky person. No, indeed. Tomas tells it almost as it is, but he did indeed reach out. And we did indeed just have this wonderful string of, of happy collisions in various in-person events back when we had those. And the more we've been talking and writing things together, the more it's clear how complementary our perspectives are. I mean, lots of overlap, but also 
we each bring a unique bit as well. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, that begs a question for me is, are there any more plans for you two to collaborate further? I mean, maybe a book? <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're taking baby steps first, but yeah, we have, a, we had another article in Fast Company. We just finished a chapter on empathy. Good. Okay. The HBR article is called Today's Leaders Need Vulnerability, Not Vibrato. Excuse me, bravado. <laughs> How, yeah, and I'm not dyslexic. You're saying it's, it's, <laughs> very, it's very vulnerable of you to mispronounce bravado. You know? so yes, you're scoring points. Thank you. And we're not going to edit that out because we're, we're being real here. That's a provocative title. So many people think it's the opposite that in this day and age, you know, with the pandemic, and anytime we're under a, a state of crisis, we need leaders with bravado and boldness who can charge ahead and conquer, you know, kick some butt. So let's talk about the bravado part first before we get into vulnerability. What's a good description of someone who leads with bravado? Well, you know, I think, I think the case studies are pretty obvious. It's, it's harder to find examples of low-key, vulnerable, empathetic, humble leaders, if anything. You know, so people like Putin, Bolsonaro, and I know you have Brazilian roots, so, you know, I, I had to pick a Brazilian head of state. Trump, of course, but also people like Fidel Castro, Margaret Thatcher, clearly a bold, abrasive, overconfident leader. So I think the characteristics are they're very focused on seeming tough. They don't want to show any signs of weaknesses or soft emotions. They seem rarely in doubt, even if they're often wrong. And, you know, they're in performance mode. And there's something that is basically centered around conveying a sense of strength and invincibility. And our point is that when you have leaders like that, they're actually a liability for their teams, organizations, and societies because they put them at risk. They're very mm -hmm. reckless. And if you're overconfident and you don't know your limitations, that's bad for everyone else. Yeah. So you may have answered my question because I was going to follow up with why doesn't bravado work now in the pandemic era that we're in? Is there a specific example to how, how bravado actually hurts, not helps your leadership style in leading in the pandemic? So there's so very many. And that's, in fact, was the real, I guess, inspiration behind the piece that we wrote. And I think anytime you're in a situation where science really matters or facts really matter or expertise of any kind matters, this is where the very attributes of bravado fall so short because almost in the nature of bravado to be unwilling to listen to others because you have to say, I'm all knowing, I have the answers, I am strong, I don't need others. I mean, that's the whole idea of being yeah. strong, right? I don't need others. And so the data on this one are pretty incontrovertible in that the nations led, and this has been much written about, but the nations led by more honest, straightforward, empathic, dare I say, vulnerable leaders have done far better on the health front than those led by the bravado type leaders. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's jump into then. You juxtapose bravado against vulnerability and two polar opposite traits that, that leaders can have. And, and leaders do have both of them, depending on what leader you have under in your company. So the word vulnerability is quite in vogue these days. A squishy word that people misconstrue as weak. In fact, even as we record this and we're trying to make the case for vulnerability, I can tell you right now, 
that there's people listening right now that are skeptics and going, no, this is just not going to work in my organization. So Amy, let's back up a little bit and define the term. How would you define it in your own words? To me, vulnerability is a simple statement of fact. I mean, the word vulnerability means I am at risk of being wounded, you know, vulnerable. It's the Latin root of, of wound. We are all at risk, right? That's just a given. That little virus is tougher than, than we are, or, you know, the various other risks and threats uh, that, are, that are out there from health to economic to interpersonal to, you know, in, in, international. And so vulnerability, if you are a vulnerable leader, you are simply willing to acknowledge reality, right? You're mm. willing to be honest about what is so. And that's because your job is to help others respond productively, you know, to cope and to remain strong in the face of these challenges. Yeah, yeah. And I would almost say that it's not just honesty as in looking at your colleague and saying, you know, your tie is really ugly, but it's, it's <laughs> emotional honesty where you're actually authentic and real and yep. you're not afraid to expressing what's right. going down. Maybe that's underneath, you know, yeah. you, you, you yeah. feel something is off. The funny thing about vulnerability is it is oddly strong because you're strong enough, courageous enough to admit a, what we're up against and B, what we can and cannot do about it. So what you're, what you're, you're asking for a lot from others as a leader, almost any time. But this is a more honest stance. The reality yeah. is that what we all have to do together going forward is not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Right? So it's, yeah. a, it's a more honest promise of what it will take while also saying, but I think we're up for it, right? So it, without acknowledging our vulnerability, we are not going to be well-equipped to respond to the, the threats that lie ahead. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned the word courageous because we have to be able to attach that to vulnerability because there's that stigma of the softness of vulnerability and courage. Being courageous, is there's nothing soft about being courageous. You have, it's a hard skill to have. And so I'm glad you brought that up. To be vulnerable is to be courageous. Tomas, you list some people in the article who are good examples of having a vulnerable style. Is there one that just kind of stands out for you? And what makes that person vulnerable? Yeah, so, you know, we talk about several political and business leaders, people like Satya Nadella, um, Howard Schultz, Oprah. And in recent months, as Amy said, there's been a lot of discussion of how heads of states have displayed vulnerability and empathy in managing the pandemic. Not just women, by the way. I mean, people like Justin Trudeau, for example, would be a good case study for that. But I'd like to pick Angela Merkel. You know, to me, she is, uh, you know, I call her the black swan event in leadership because everything bad that most leaders display, she's the opposite, polar opposite of. And if you look at her handling of the pandemic, you can see the strength of vulnerable style. She took some time to think about the situation. She came out, gave a brief address, said, this is serious, I'm very concerned. Please look after yourself. Don't do anything silly. And then kind of retreated. And you didn't see her again in months. But, you know, this is someone with a PhD in chemistry. She's a scientist. She had good advice. She much like she handled anything else, she managed to be apolitical, objective, and put people's lives first. Mm. Surprise, surprise, you know, Germany dealt with the situation much better than its neighbors. 
And did she come out to say, this is nothing, we're going to be fine? I remember, actually, it was before the pandemic, a BBC journalist asked me in the context of my bashing over confident leaders, say, the question was something along the lines of, but who wants to follow a leader who says, I don't know? And I said, maybe a rational person, a mature person. So let's not forget that it's not just about Merkel or Jacinda Ardern, another example, but the maturity and the intelligence and the rationality of their followers and people, the societies that don't need to be felt or don't need to experience a fake sense of immunity. They're smart and rational and mature enough to understand that there's difficult challenges ahead and they trust their leaders because they know what they don't know. Interesting that you mentioned the... uh I had a conversation with Gary Ridge, CEO of uh, the WD-40 company. He says that the three most powerful words a leader can speak out loud is what you just said. I don't know. Wow. Okay, let's get into the practical side of vulnerability. So you guys listed five examples of what you can do to cultivate a more vulnerable style of leadership. This is the crux of the article and, and really the, the bulk of this conversation today, because I want to get, I want to dig into each of the five. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to state what they are, and then I'm going to ask you each to unpack each of those five. So here we go. Number one, start by telling the truth. Amy? Seems like a pretty good place to start, doesn't it? As a leader, you often, most often have more access to more information than others. That's part of your job. And I think it is your responsibility to share that candid perspective with people so that they know what they're, they're in for. So, and what, what this is, of course, I mean, this sounds pretty obvious, right? What it's in contrast with is telling people what you think they would rather hear. And when you do that, you fall into a trap, right? You fall into a trap where truth will eventually come out. It's just going to come out later. And it doesn't keep well, actually, right? We need, we need to have the ability to respond quickly. So by being clear about what you know and what you don't know, as soon as you can, you're creating the conditions where others can you know, begin to jump in and do their part. Yeah, yeah. Number two, Tomas, I look at this as more humility than actual vulnerability, and that's ask for help. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, humility is a precondition and they're strongly related. You need to be aware of your limitations, know what you don't know, and actually be open about it with others. That's when asking for help comes in. Most leaders, it's actually not their fault. They're operating in environments where they have to be in performance mode all the time. As the, one of the interesting paradoxes of complexity and the world and progress is that as the world becomes more complex and leadership talent and performance even becomes harder to measure and observe. By the way, we live in an age where most people don't care about how even their politicians are performing because it's too complicated to look at data and facts, you know? So as leadership talent becomes harder to quantify, to observe intuitively, we cling more to these uh, superficial and intuitive aspects that, that represent, you know, features or indicators of style rather than substance. So because of that, leaders have every incentive to pretend they know the answer when they don't, which involves not asking for help and pretending, you know, they're more in a meeting, they'll be busier faking knowledge and trying to come across as the smartest person in the room that actually saying, how do I do this? 
Mm. That obviously makes them worse and worse and weakens them and in turn the team. So, you know, asking for help and asking even your direct reports and your followers, the people that work for you to help you, makes you vulnerable because they know that you're not invincible, but it also makes you smarter. And it engages them in the democratic and consultative process of making decisions. Amy has done a lot of work showing that in the knowledge economy, knowledge is by definition distributed. So if you don't create the conditions for others to help you, you're not helping the team. Yeah. Yeah. Let me stick with that one for a little bit. And either one of you can jump in here. But so how do you ask for help effectively as a leader? It depends, right? It depends on what the what the help you're needing, but it's certainly straightforward enough to ask for help from various experts in different domains. You know, you ask for help related to health issues from your health experts, from, you know, your security experts, you ask for help from them. So you're being clear. It's actually a source of strength, of course, to be able to ask for help because you're recognizing that you have these remarkable people on your team and that their particular expertise is needed to solve the problems that you face. Would that include your own employees under you? Of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think Steve Jobs once said, you know, if we hire smart people, it's not to tell them what to do, but to tell us what to do. Exactly. (laughs) And he wasn't particularly vulnerable as a leader. Let's, let's be clear on this. Yeah. 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 I had a boss once, Larry Wilson, who, who said, I don't have a PhD. He said, I have 17 PhDs. And he meant working for him. <laughs> I love it. Exactly. <laughs> Number three is go outside your comfort zone. Amy, you want to unpack that? Well, that's about being willing to do the things you don't yet know how to do well. I think, you know, most leaders will spontaneously rely on their past experience, you know, their past playbook, um, which given the the novelty that we're all facing now, but that leaders are facing continuously in a fast changing world, those old playbooks don't work well in the in the new situation. So going outside your comfort zone means trying things you haven't tried before that may not work and relatedly having other people help, recognizing the need for other people to sort of join in and team with you uh, to come up with a new playbook. Yeah. See the two almost interchangeable, ask for help and go outside your comfort zone. I mean, one leads to the other, I think. Tomas, were you going to say something? No, just okay. noting in agreement, violent agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Number four is when you make a mistake, admit it and apologize. And I can't help to, there is the word humility again, but yes, yes, it's a subcategory of vulnerability. But so many of these, as I read, as I go down, I'm thinking you got to let your ego aside or you, can't, you cannot operate through your ego. So, Tomas, talk, talk to us about that. When you make a mistake, admit it and apologize. Yeah, you know, and first of all, I want to come clear about this. And as a disclaimer, as you know, as an Argentine, I still haven't been able to make a mistake myself in my life. <laughs> but when I, if I ever do, I will apologize. You know, you, you have my promise and I'm waiting for a moment. But, you know, it's, it's, you read our points and this is no exception. And they seem so obvious and so easy to implement. And yet... We have to state them and the fact that actually you have to ask, but how do you do it and why means they're actually not that frequently applied, right? So in reality, what happens is that, first of all, when leaders make a mistake and that happens very often, it's hard for them to even be persuaded that it's their fault to begin with. They will look for excuses and blame others. And, you know, there's, a, there's an old kind of almost law in psychology called the attribution error, which means that when things go well, it's because of your talents, your hard work, and 
congratulations, you deserve it. And when they go bad, it's because of the situation, context. Other people are usually the situation. So if leaders have a big ego and they're overconfident and deluded, they're not even going to think that it's their fault. Why would they apologize? A fake apology doesn't work to begin with. But if you are self-critical, you are vulnerable, and you see that you screwed up, then the next step is don't try to hide it, but admit it. And, you know, there's nothing as powerful as a sincere and meaningful apology to make up for things. And actually, nothing else works. You know when people say, I'm sorry, but they really don't mean it? Yeah. It's a bit like, well, I'm sorry if I upset you. I didn't mean it. And you don't mean it now because you don't think you did anything wrong. You know, you have to truly feel and experience and share the guilt and regret and persuade them that it means something to you and, and you are sorry. Yeah. Here's what's coming up for me as I heard you describe that is if a leader like that is admits their mistake, apologizes and owns up basically to me, I wouldn't even call it vulnerability. I would say that leader is acting, is walking the talk of integrity. And maybe integrity and vulnerability are synonymous with each other. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's, they are displaying integrity as well as vulnerability. Mm. And, you know, we call it vulnerability because it is in juxtaposition or the opposite of that kind of toughness, abrasive bravado, which, by the way, unfortunately, doesn't come with what you just described. Yeah. So there's a correlation. They're not the same concept, but they're highly correlated in practice. Mm, okay. Number five, Amy, is engage others in your journey of self-improvement. These are clearly very interrelated, but that's that builds on asking for help and it builds on honesty. Because if you are deliberately engaging others in your own journey of self-improvement, first, that means you have engaged in a journey of self-improvement, right? You have acknowledged that you want to get better, which I think all of us should want, but for various psychological reasons, that's not necessarily easy. And then second, you've agreed to come clean about where you know you need help. And you've at, you're asking people for feedback, and then you're on the hook for responding to that feedback to try to yeah. do better. Yeah. Tell me if this resonates with you, is that the journey of a leader is to constantly evolve and learn him or herself. And in that learning process, you pass that on to other people, maybe through mentoring or coaching and helping build people up. You could say that given that we don't have a playbook for novel situations, and given that most of the situations we face nowadays are novel to some degree or another, that means our entire job is to participate in and engage others in a learning process, mm. a continuous learning process. And that's a kind of, that's a process where we're hypothesizing and then testing and then learning openly and honestly from what just happened. And so it's, a, it's an iterative, vulnerable, ongoing journey toward getting better at something. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Guys, I'm going to leave this to either one of you, okay? Because a lot of people, I was reading the LinkedIn comments that came in streaming in when LinkedIn posted that article, right? And there are some three, 400 comments. And some people would argue that natural leaders tend to innately possess a certain degree of bravado. It's just in their nature. And that there can be this delicate balance of bravado and vulnerability that you need both to succeed. I don't know, call it the two-headed monster. I mean, is that true? You know, I would put it slightly differently. And then I'll be interested in what Tomas is thinking as well. But I would say 
we do need balance, right? We we need to be able to say with confidence that which we have, right? Here's here's the data on this, or here's my belief of the direction we should head. We need to be able to say that with confidence. I don't call that bravado, right? I mean, I call that being willing to share what you're thinking right now with confidence, with a compelling story that that underlies it while remaining. So maybe, yes, this is balance because while remaining open always to the possibility, indeed the near necessity that you're missing something. So if that's balance, okay. But bravado, I'm not sure it's the right word for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think bravado and a certain element of kind of toughness and traditional kind of assertiveness and strength are clearly effective weapons to get people higher up in systems and organizations. But that's due to the deficiencies of those who make decisions and those who still mistake such displays of strength and even hubris and confidence with actual competence. In a logical world, we would focus less on style and more on substance. And what would matter is performance, talent, and competence, you know? And we would allow for differences in variability or even diversity in style. Some might be charismatic and funny and entertaining and sociable, and some might be quite boring and technical, like Angela Merkel. But the point is that style is not as important as substance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tomas, when does vulnerability become a weakness? Well, I think, you know, following from the same thought, I think if the system or the culture or the parameters that you're immersed in or dependent on don't tolerate sort of displays of openness, kindness, and self-doubt, because they assume that if you have doubts or you're self-critical, maybe you're not that good. It becomes a weakness in terms of helping you ascend into leadership roles to begin with. Of course, we also know that everything is counterproductive in excess or in extreme, you know. Unfortunately, balance and moderation don't sell. But, you know, Aristotle and many people since have pointed out that, you know, it is better to be balanced than to be on either extreme. To me, great leadership development is about learning how to become the opposite of what you naturally are and become a more complete version of yourself. You know, so if you're naturally overconfident and have a lot of bravado, then for sure you need to tone it down. And if you're naturally a little bit timid, insecure, and, you know, riddled with self-doubt, then yes, you know, we need to kind of give you a bit of swagger and oomph because it's going to help you. So moderation is best for any trader. Mm. Amy, how do we normalize vulnerability in the workplace so that, you know, one day, you know, we hear employees saying, oh, yeah, I, I work for a, a confident leader. We instead will hear one day, I work for a vulnerable leader. And it's not going to put anybody off when you hear that. A lot of this is about which words we use to describe the style that we're talking about or the approach. It's really an approach. It's an approach that says, yes, I'm passionate about, say, the purpose of the organization. And I'm humble enough to know that we don't have this thing nailed yet, right? I need your help. I need your input. So, you know, I'm less confident in the statement that we will someday say, "Ah, I work for a vulnerable leader, as we will say, I work for a great leader. And what we mean is a leader who's passionate, a leader who's curious, a leader who's open to others' ideas and has some of her own, right? So that we, in this 
conversation and in our article, we would describe that as vulnerable and, and absolutely believe that that's an apt term. But that's not the same as saying this will be the sort of colloquial way we talk about it. Love that response. Amy, your name is now synonymous with the words psychological safety. Define the terms for us in your own words. Well, I'll define the term as a belief that the environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And of course, we've been talking in this program about interpersonal risk the whole time, which is an interpersonal risk is saying, I don't know, or admitting a mistake or asking for help. All of those are what social psychologists would call interpersonal risks. And in far too many workplaces, those things just don't seem realistic, right? They don't seem safe. They just seem like I couldn't possibly. And that belief of, you know, not having psychological safety makes people very much at risk for not doing the very behaviors that are needed for their teams and their organizations to get ahead. So, you know, the term isn't great in the, in the sense that as soon as you hear it, you think soft. It's actually incredibly hard. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's about candor. It's about being willing to let the purpose be more important than your own impression management. Yeah, yeah. When belief becomes practice, it unleashes all kinds of great things. I'm talking about psychological safety. You have an awesome example in your book about how it unleashes innovation and creativity. You want to share that with us? I think you're talking about the Pixar example. Where Ed Kotmal, who's co-founder and, and was remained longtime CEO, absolutely epitomized with the kinds of things that Tomas and I have been talking about in his you know, passion about what they were trying to do together and humility about, I don't have the answers, right? And, and you need all this incredible diversity of expertise from computer science to art to storytelling and the ability to put that together. And so there's a constant modeling by Catmull and others of that sort of humility and that curiosity and that strong processes of engaging other people's input in a systematic way to keep making the product better and better, more and more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. So we know what it is. Let's find out about what gets in the way of it. What would you say is the barrier, the, the biggest barrier, maybe barriers that are obstacles to having an environment of psychological safety. Leadership bravado would be a big one, right? I mean, leaders who either overtly or covertly are conveying, I don't want to hear any bad news. Don't come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions, which by the way, is one of my least favorite management sayings, because the real message is don't come to me with bad news. And mm. Therefore, you live in a, you know, the world of the happy idiot that doesn't know what's going on, which is a much more dangerous world than the one where you do know what's going on. So really, leadership behavior is a strong determinant of psychological safety, both positively and negatively. Yeah. Tomas, I want to talk a little bit, bring back your book. It's a, a little flashback from episode 12. So you are quoted in the book, and I, I always use this quote. In fact, I probably overuse it, but here it is. The same psychological characteristics that enable men to emerge as leaders may actually be responsible for their downfall. What it takes to get the job is not just different from, but also sometimes the reverse of what it takes to do the job. Mm. Break that down for us. Well, you know, mostly we pick leaders on the basis of their 
confidence and the more they have of it, you know, the more self-belief they have, the more we persuade ourselves that they're actually competent. The correlation between the two is close to zero, you know, 0.3. So 9% overlap between how good you are at something, which is your competence, and how good you think you are at something, which is your confidence. So more often than not, you have to choose one or the other. And we tend to choose confidence over competence. The other one is charisma, which isn't necessarily bad, but when it's not coupled with competence, it really is quite toxic. You know, if you're, if you're inept or a crook, I really want you to be as uncharismatic as possible because then you're going to influence fewer people and you're going to be less effective. And then the last one is narcissism, you know, entitlement and being in it for yourself is a big career lubricant and it should not surprise us that if we select people who are not as good as they think, charismatic, but somewhat sociopathic, and then in it for themselves, when they are in charge, they don't have a very good effect on others. And mostly what the book argues is that, you know, in general, we prefer incompetent men to competent women. The bar is much higher for women. We shouldn't, by the way, lower it so that more incompetent women get to the top. We should just raise it for men. You know, you kind of have to feel sorry for men because since our bar is so low, we allow for a lot of bad men to become leaders, you know. Such a good reframe, right? It's not good for men to see, to have all these negative examples. We're not helping them out. Not not a good reputational boost. Yeah. 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 And we're not helping the women out that have those high aspiring traits that we want in both genders, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, for a long time, we've been pointing the finger at women, blaming them for not behaving like incompetent men. Uh, (laughs) But we also overlook or ignore men when they behave like competent women. Yeah. Isn't it funny that what you said that women seem to mimic those incompetent men and they take on the traits and that's what gets them to rise up to the, you know, up the corporate ladder, climbing the corporate ladder. But yet along the path, they are destroying the lives of other people, just like those narcissistic men are, because they have taken the likeness of those incompetent men. That's why I love your book so much. Yeah, and they don't become a good role model. And I don't know, Amy, you will probably know who said there's a special place in hell for women who hate women because they end up being women's worst enemies. Who said that again? Yeah, I don't know. There, there is. It feels like Margaret Albright or something like that who don't help other women, right? A special place in hell for women who don't help other women, which given the, I think that just the pleasure one can get of being a good mentor, meaning really helping others, a sponsor and a mentor, it's hard to believe people don't want to take advantage of that pleasure. Yeah. Well, this has been a rich conversation. I I knew it would be, but uh, it has Surpass my expectations. So I want to, as we wind down here, I want It always to... helps to have very low expectations so that they are <laughs> surpassed, you know? That's the secret to success, or at least enjoyment. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make the link between leadership and practical love. The whole reason we call this show Love in Action, which is off-putting. I've actually had guests turn down the invitation because they just saw the title. And love in this case is sort of an umbrella verb that acts to inspire and empower people to flourish and succeed. So how does a leader love well in business day in and day out? And Amy, I'll start with you. I think love is caring. And those leaders who don't care ultimately don't become great leaders. So leaders 
connect with, model love, which allows, you know, no one follows you if you're not attractive. I don't mean physically. I mean, attractive in what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're pointing toward. And love is attraction, right? It's like gravity. It's just a force, a force of, of metaphysics that allows us to do hard things. And so I think that's how leaders connect to love through caring and through attracting others to follow. Yeah, yeah. Full disclosure on the title of the podcast, I sat down with Ken Blanchard and he said servant lead because he's the servant leadership guy, right? He said servant leadership is love in action. Boom. I stuck with the title. So there you go. How about you, Tomas? What would you say is are, are maybe just one example of how you can love well at work as a leader day in and day out? Well, first, I want to pick up on the servant leadership comment, because even if you if you don't know or don't like or don't apply that concept, I mean, leadership is always a resource for the group. It's something that enables them to function better and to achieve something collectively that they can't, you know, on their own. So leaders must love their people and their teams and their group. If that doesn't happen, it's not going to work. And I think, you know, there is a transformative effect that love has making something better. So in a way, I see the leader as a sort of an artist or sculpture that is taking the raw ingredients of a group of people and turning them into a beautiful artwork or something, you know? And that can only happen if there is a kind of back and forth dynamic between them where they make, they love each other and make each other better. So how do you do this in practice? You know, I mean, it's an art, you know, you can apply the science and read it, etc. but it's an art. It requires understanding each individual in your group or team for who they really are, personalizing and customizing your relationship and just being consistent and being honest and being trying to be as competent as you can and just be a resource for the group. You know, we still, especially in the Western world and especially in the United States, focus on leadership too much from the individual perspective. It equates or equals success, accolades, money, power. But it's about the team and the group. It's not about you. Mm. Yeah, the emphasis is on getting ahead, not on making a difference, where it really should be on making a difference. Perfectly stated. Well, gang, we end our episodes. I wish we didn't, but we have to, with one final takeaway, that, that one important thing you'd like to close us with that's going to make a difference in our lives. Ladies first. Mine is curiosity. I think if people... Leaders and others wake up every morning and just somehow find a way to remind yourself to stay curious. It leads to all of the behaviors that we're talking about. It leads to inquiry. It leads to asking others what they think, what they care about. And then the rest is takes care of itself. You know, and I, I, I love curiosity as well. But to give you a new one, you know, I, I'm going to stay with humility, you know, and I think we probably spent now 20 years paying lip service to humility and talking about how leaders have to be humble, blah, blah, blah. No one in the right mind or even, I mean, would honestly kind of disagree. But we keep on saying it because we don't see it very often, you know? So it would be nice to wake up in a world in which humble leaders are the norm and arrogant leaders are the exception. But I think we still have some, a lot of room to make or progress to make to get to Mm. the stage. Well, I am grateful for this conversation. You both are amazing human beings doing such important work. I want to thank you for coming on today and shifting our minds a little bit this morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure.
And finally, if people want to get a hold of you, find out more about you, where can they go? amycedmondson.com. Yeah, and my website, I guess, drthomas.com with no H. So D-R-T-O-M-A-S. And, you know, hard to find us in the physical or analog world for some time, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> yeah. I will make sure that those two are in my show notes for you to find out more about both uh, Thomas and Amy. If you'd like to join the conversation and comment on this episode, hashtag Love in Action Podcast will get you there. I will also be posting this episode on Twitter at Marcel Schwantes and on LinkedIn. Marcel Schwantes is where you find me there. And feel free to follow the discussion there. I'm going to come right back with your action steps for today's episode. Don't miss that. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tomas and Amy. Here are your action steps for today's episode. I have four. So try these and let me know whether they're making a change in how you lead or work. Number one, you want to start by telling the truth. So share your candid perspective with other people. Share what you know and what you don't know. Number two, you got to ask for help. So be honest and authentic about your need for your people's support. Because putting yourself in this position will actually increase their commitment to you. It's going to make the team stronger. Number three, when you make a mistake, admit it and apologize. Plain and simple. And finally, you want to engage others in your journey of self-improvement. In other words, yes, be committed to personal development, you know, learning and growing as a leader, but share about what you're learning along the way. Let your people know how you're improving things like communication skills and giving feedback. Be candid, be real as you learn and grow. So when you engage both the heart and the mind by doing these things, you've just experienced love in action. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the Love in Action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.